0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Barbara moved to the viewing room and approached the casket. Jim Hansa had done his best, but Dennis was blonde and fair-skinned, so the mortician's work couldn't hide all the bruises. Barbara saw the big one on his forehead, another on his right temple, one on his cheek, one on the side of his nose. A white crown of roses set not atop Dennis's head, but moreover on his forehead, as if placed there to hide the bruises. From A Death in White Bear Wake by Barry Siegel. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be. chick so rosy like to make you comfy cozy cuz i love to... Welcome back. I'm your host Jill, back with a new story for you. First, i want to send a big thank you to all my murder bookies in Oregon. You are simply amazing. And wit 0523 your kind five-star review really renews me. All right, next, my holiday merch shop is open on Spreadshop, link on my blog. So get those gifts because time is flying. I know, already, right? I also want to thank you most sincerely for the prayers and the condolences sent after the death of a member of my family. This was a source of comfort during this really difficult time. We're all doing better, and things will continue to move forward. Now, I am so glad you are listening to episode 50, The All-American City on Barry Siegel's A Death in White Bear Lake, part one. Warning, lights flashing. This is a very difficult story to hear. I mean, they're all difficult, but, but this one? I wept reading about this case. The anguish is real. But it is a story we need to know because it straddles the spectrum from apathy and silence to achieving desperately needed change and awareness. Right, in 1988, author Barry Siegel lived in the community of White Bear Lake, Minnesota for five months as he exhaustively researched, interviewing over 100 people, being welcomed and embraced, and wrote the 436 page book. A Death in White Bear Lake. My usual request, read the book. I had to cut out a lot due to the intensity of this astonishing story, but I retained the heart and guts of it. Barry Siegel is a winner of a 2002 Pulitzer Prize for Featured Writing, a former national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, He now directs the Literary Journalism Program at the University of California, Irvine. Siegel wrote seven more books after White Bear Lake, earning him dozens of honors, among them two Penn Center West Literary Awards in Journalism, the Livingston Award, and the American Bar Association Silver Gavel Award. His latest book, Dreamers and Schemers, delves into the transformation of Los Angeles from a seedy pioneer town into a megapolis after pursuing and hosting the 1932 Olympics. I think it reminds me a little of The Devil in White City, but dreamers and schemers on my to-read list. All right, so this is Book Club, and I like food. So what deliciousness am I bringing to you today? Very popular in Minnesota, where much of our story takes place, and in the South, is glorified rice. I went through a dozen recipes and the time it takes to prepare varies from 40 minutes to 15. Now, without sacrificing flavor, I went with the 15-minute version because as you know, life can be complicated. You can cook the rice in advance, then mix the ingredients together, heavy cream, sugar or stevia, whatever you prefer, vanilla, marciano cherries, pineapple, marshmallows, and refrigerate until you are ready to eat. Now, this is a sweet, creamy dessert, and one I decided to pair with Irene Pavia Cu Reserva Curicó Valley Chardonnay 2021 from Naked Wines. This Chardonnay is a Chilean wine made from the Senna grape, crisp, with a light bouquet. You can savor the flavor of baked apples, poached pears, vanilla, and it's a lovely compliment to our glorified rice. And with this description, this is one of the best deals out there. A bottle costs $10.99 for this amazing quality. So swirl and sip. The recipe and information about the wine are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Bon appétit, Murder Bookies. Our story begins in 1986, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, a second-ring suburb of St. Paul. It had a Wendy's, a Dairy Queen, Polar Chevrolet, a Jiffy Print, a Two Guys from Italy restaurant, one liquor store, a dozen small shops offering everything from live bait to video rentals. Who remembers Friday night at Blockbuster renting the latest? Be kind and rewind. Other quaint stores bore the names of the country goose, the sleepy shop, all laid out along a sparkling, clear lake encompassing 2,500 acres. Summer cottages had been converted to serve four seasons, while others expanded into princely, picturesque homes. The White Bear Police Station, with 28 officers, was nestled between the businesses and residential areas. And September 18, 1986, a woman, Jerry Sherwood, and her two children, Dennis and Misty McIntyre, arrived at the station, being met there by Lieutenant Buzz Harvey and Detective Ron Meehan, veterans who joined the force back in 1960. Jerry, age 42, was tall with a substantial blonde updo and had questions. Jerry wanted justice, plain and simple. Barry Siegel writes, quote, when she was 17 and living in a juvenile home, she gave birth to a boy, Dennis. Who was quickly taken from her and adopted by a family named Jurgens, Lois and Harold, who lived in White Bear Lake. Two husbands and four children later, Sherwood had gone searching for her firstborn, only to learn he had died years before in 1965 at age three. From a yellowing newspaper notice of his death that she'd found during her search, she learned that the boy's body bore multiple injuries and bruises. From the death certificate, she'd learned the coroner had never ruled whether the death was an accident, homicide, or the result of natural causes. they just buried the body, and that was all. Her voice was harsh and forceful. Quote, they beat my baby. They beat my baby to death. She stopped, angry, doubting she'd get any satisfaction from the police department that failed her son. End quote. Jerry's story was tough and all too familiar. Her mother took off when she was three years old, resulting in her being shuttled from relative to foster care growing up. At 17, she'd had Dennis and was forced to give him up. Now, Jerry went on to marry his father and having four additional children together. They divorced, leaving Jerry to raise them as best she could, sometimes managing an apartment building, sometimes drawing welfare and sometimes dancing at the local club, a Larry's. Now, she'd been told that they would take her baby boy to, quote, people who could give him all that I couldn't. Well, they were right. I could never have given him death. My four children have had it rough, but they're still alive, end quote. Lieutenant Buzz Harvey felt under siege as if he'd killed Dennis himself. Ron Meehan And remember this name because he's going to be an important person here. He was confused. Jerry named both her sons Dennis? Uh, Yes, she had. Mahan did remember the case, and there was an older child too, Robert Jurgens. Pulling the files on the Jurgens case, Buzz read, quote, Dennis was laying on his back in the crib with his head facing west and his feet pointing east. His arms were alongside his body. There were covers partially on Dennis, up to about the middle of his body. Dennis had many black and blue spots or bruises on his face, head, and arms. On his face and forehead were at least a dozen black and blue places. Some were very large, and others small. His nose was almost blood red and peeling. Sobbing, Jerry, Misty, and Dennis were angry and upset, and promised to call regularly for updates. Ron Meehan was one of those guys who would have been a criminal if he hadn't become a cop. The brawler type? Back 20 years ago, White Bear Lake officers Sergeant Pete Karlchuk and Detective Bob Vanderwist handled the case. They were friends of Ron's, bonding over rum and cokes, raising kids, and fishing. Ron decided to speak with the Chief of Criminal Division, Jim Conan. After reviewing the 26-page search file, Cohen walked down the hall to consult with the county attorney, Tom Foley, saying, quote, This one is dynamite. Wait till you read this. End quote. The bureaucracy was gearing up. After two weeks of silence, Jerry Sherwood showed up at the coroner's asking to see a copy of her son's autopsy, only to be told she needed a court order as she did not have legal custody of Dennis when he died. But something irked the assistant county coroner, Jim Essling. He retrieved a copy from the archives to see it for himself. At the time of the Jerkins case, Essling was an aide to the coroner and worked on the tiny body when it arrived. The coroner's three-page report was sketchy. Three-and-a-half-year-old found dead at home. Physician Dr. Roy Peterson was on site. Body and face covered with bruises, radiating in all directions. A laceration at the base of the penis. The immediate cause of death was peritonitis due to perforation of the bowel. Had this been caused by accident, natural cause, homicide? No idea. The report read deferred. Essling called out, quote, "Doc, you've got to look at this file. It's bad." End quote. Doctor Michael McGee a tall, thin, 39-year-old, was intensely devoted to his vocation as a forensic pathologist. Quote, are you telling me this case is out of our office? Get the reports. Talk to the pathologist. We've got to do the whole nine yards. I can't believe this. End quote. McGee thought it was a homicide, but he needed more documentation. A court order later, McGee had six photographs from the autopsy which disturbed him. A small, scrawny boy's body was covered with ugly bruises, raw and angry wounds appeared on his forehead, nasty cuts. It looked as if Dennis had been tortured. And rigor wasn't right. It was extreme, indicating Dennis had died at least six to ten hours before, not while lying on his back in the crib. He had been moved by someone. Dr. McGee notifies Tom Foley, this is a homicide. Reporter Brian Bonner was alerted by Essling that something big was going to blow. After Bonner interviewed Jerry Sherwood, he tracked down Harold and Lois Jurgens, now living near Lake Elmo, breaking the news that the Dennis Jurgens case had been reclassified as a homicide. Lois Jurgens wanted to know who was doing this, stating, "I'm very puzzled. I can't understand what's going on." When informed that the birth mother, Jerry Sherwood, was behind this, Lois lawyered up. Bonner's article appeared in the St. Paul Pioneer Press Dispatch on October 12, 1986, including a quote from Dr. McGee. It took me about a minute and a half to rule on this case. It isn't some medical mystery. On reading this, Pam Dawkins, who was Lois Juergen's niece, marched to the phone and called her sister, Carlene, telling her, quote, I think they got her. End quote. And Carlene immediately knew who her was. Hey, y'all. Hey, I'm Karen Devaney. And I'm Ann Varner. We're from Sugar Coated Murder Podcast. And we have big news. Big news. Huge news. Very, very big news. We are here to reveal the cover to our new debut book. Click, click, click. Yeah, that's the title. (laughs) Click, click, click. Hello. It's part of a new series we're starting called the Same I name Series. Yes, we're actually going to start highlighting the victims who have been lost and forgotten in their own murders. So this is just the beginning of our adventure, and we hope that you'll be with us the entire time. Absolutely. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, cue the confetti. Wee! Wee! Driving to work the next morning, Marion Dina Nord broke into a cold sweat hearing about the Jurgens case. She always knew the authorities would reopen it. Other members of the community across the region had similar reactions as people pondered once again what could or should they have done then. So who were Dennis Jurgens' adopted parents, Lois and Harold Jurgens? Lois zerwak Jurgens was part of the huge Zerwak family and knew everyone in the area. Lois was the fourth child of John and Lois Zerwak. The family was terribly poor during the Great Depression, given John's aversion to work. Reminiscing, the Zerwaks were described as both carefree, fun-loving, wild, and no good and often on welfare. As a girl, Lois was shy and withdrawn and half-starved as her father's rages could be heard across the street. Longing for escape, Lois quit school in eighth grade. A beautiful girl at a town dance, Lois caught the eye of a local band leader, 19-year-old Harold Durgens. The background information on Harold is far thinner than that of Lois. He is the guy that his high school classmates couldn't remember. An only child Harold's dad was a radio repairman. So think cell phone technician. His mom was an office worker. Dad took Harold camping, but it was music that really captured Harold, and hence the band, the hertz Jurgens Orchestra, who played at local venues. Harold hoped to make a career of music. He thought Lois was beautiful and spunky, and they began dating in 1941. Then, Off, Harold went to Panama to play music, writing Lois regularly. Eventually, Harold made a decision that playing music in Panama was not compatible with being married, and he wanted to be married. So January 31st, 1944, Harold and Lois married, running off as their parents didn't approve. Lois was Catholic, Harold Lutheran. With World War II going on, Harold did a brief stint in the Naval Air Corps and then took a job as an electrician, qualifying as a Union journeyman in 1952. Young couple, ready to tackle the world, they thought they were all set, but it was not perfect. After eight years of marriage, there was no baby. And there were also Lois's health complaints. Fatigue, constipation, insomnia, pains, aches. In 1951, she was seen at the Mayo Clinic without the discovery of any physiological ailment. Psychiatrist Dr. Norman P. Goldstein's summary report on Lois reveals a lot. Her father was an alcoholic, abusive, in a small crowded home where Lois could hear her parents having sex. She resented being taken out of school in the eighth grade to help out at home. With 16 siblings, a lot of help was needed. But she said she was taken out of eighth grade. Other reports have her choosing to quit school. Interesting. Her health was fairly good until she began battling with her critical mother in law, who blamed the infertility on Lois. Harold had been dominated by his mother, but Lois had, quote, broken him out of that, end quote. Lois absolutely believed that her mother in law had tried to gas her to death once. A little paranoia in there, maybe? Lois didn't really enjoy intercourse, and she really wanted to be more religious, in addition to the many fears and compulsions that she experienced. Fear of death, cancer, going crazy, the dark. A rigid personality, Lois was upset by, well, everything. Quote, I'm just exhausted all the time, even if I rest. I used to be a bundle of energy. I used to love going out dancing. Now I care for nothing. I want children. I want them so badly. I just want to stay home and raise children. I want to give them clothes and education and the home I never had, end quote. Dr. Goldstein's diagnosis, quote, a long-standing psychoneurosis beginning back in childhood as evidenced by bedwetting until age 13. It is fortunate that this woman has not been able to carry through pregnancy. At this time, as a child will only compound and complicate her emotional disturbance, she would be a poor candidate for adopting a child at this time. They cannot afford psychiatric care, which she desperately needs. Without it, she may go into a paranoid schizophrenia, end quote. This is a pretty severe assessment of Lois. We've got obsessive-compulsive disorder Neurosis, which is a mental disorder involving stress, depression, anxiety, obsessive behaviors, and hypochondria, which is anxiety caused by worrying about one's health, which we see she's got a lot of health complaints with no physical origin. And possible was the most serious of mental illness, schizophrenia, a long term mental disorder involving a breakdown in the relationship between thought, emotion, and behavior, leading to flawed perception inappropriate actions and feelings, withdrawal from reality and personal relationships into fantasy, delusion, a sense of mental fragmentation. So Lois should clearly not parent. Now Lois did try to get help in spite the financial limitations. From 1953 to 1955, she saw a psychiatrist and had electroshock treatments for depression. In June 1955, the Jurgens filed to adopt with the Bureau of Catholic Charities in St. Paul, who did get a copy of Dr. Goldstein's Mayo Clinic assessment of Lois. Meanwhile, Harold and Lois bought a family friendly home, a corner house with a big backyard and three bedrooms in a neighborhood where kids played wiffle ball, kickball, and hide and seek. Family parties ensued, where Lois was wisecracking when in a good mood. But harsh and stern when crossed. Walking on eggshells around her was essential. Visitors noted that the Gergent home was immaculate. And then Catholic charities denied their application for adoption. So they then tried the Ramsey County Welfare Department, but faced resistance when Lois was judged to be too rigid. When the county did finally offer them a child, they turned it down. He was too old and appeared to be handicapped. While waiting for their adoption application to be processed, the Jurgens became aware of a pregnant waitress working at a local coffee shop who intended to give up her baby. As private adoptions in Minnesota were legal, Harold's attorney greased the process. and June 22, 1960, a baby boy was born and four days later arrived home with his new elated parents, Harold and Lois Jurgens. In spite of some denials and resistance from the authorities, they had a son they named Robert. Robert was a sickly baby, quiet and relatively inactive. By now, Harold had converted to Catholicism, and at eighteen months old, Robert was making the sign of the cross. Yet their family still felt incomplete, and with Harold now forty and Lois thirty seven, they were approaching the cutoff age for adoptive parents. So, they filed to adopt another baby right after Christmas 1961. March 1st, 1962, caseworker Geraine Rechdahl arrived at the Jurgen's home, noting it was lovely with a piano and fiddle in the living room. At 20 months old, Robert seemed happy, a well-disciplined child, going off to play with his toys when asked to do so. To the 27-year-old social worker, Harold was nervous chatty and eager to please, while Lois seemed to think that Duraine's presence was some imposition. Duraine was aware of the negative reports in the Jurgens file. Defensive at first, the Jurgens began to relax, with Lois insisting they were happy, loved Robert. They were great parents, with her rigid perfectionism obvious. Duraine Recdale tried to be fair. They had a stable home, churchgoers of the same faith, And so eager in spite of lukewarm reports, Duran vowed to move more slowly, however. In subsequent visits, the subject of Lois's mental health came up, with Lois explaining that Harold's sterility had been the cause. Once Robert came into their lives, it all resolved. She was so happy and so much better. Now, Duran wasn't a psychologist, but didn't think it quite worked that way. Yet, Lois was more relaxed, chatting happily about growing up and playing in the woods, going on hayrides and picnics, but also bore the heavy responsibility of chores and her father's use of spanking for discipline, little different from what we've been hearing. When pressed on whether her childhood home was neat and clean or not, given there had been some mixed reports on this, Lois bristled sharply. In a monotone, she insisted it was neat and clean, and she'd raised her younger siblings, even sacrificing school to do so. Her anger was suppressed, but clear. Joraine also interviewed a neighbor and the parish priest, who all had good things to say about the couple. The Father Riser also told Joraine that Lois's childhood home was a shambles, another contradiction. So defending Lois, Father Reiser explained to Doreen that Lois was loyal to the Zerwek's and built them up. He supported Lois and Harold's bid for another child. In the end, Doreen saw Lois in a positive light, and when she gave the good news to Lois and Harold, they smiled from ear to ear. Then Lois went over their list of requirements. Caucasian, medium intelligence, healthy, sex was irrelevant, young as possible, and Catholic. On December 6, 1961, an 8.5-pound baby boy was born at St. Michael's Hospital to Jerry Ann Puckett, age 17, Protestant and unmarried to the father, Dennis McIntyre, age 19, a construction worker and Catholic. As Jerry was planning to take instruction in the Roman Catholic faith, her newborn son, Dennis, was baptized. A juvenile, Jerry had been living in the Sauk Center Reform School in Scott County after her rebellious attitude got her into trouble. When Jerry wanted to keep Dennis, the Scotts County authorities did not believe that she would prove to be an adequate mother given her rootless existence, and the father had already terminated his parental rights. Dennis was taken to a foster home to be cared for by Mr. and Mrs. William Martins, With great reluctance, Jerry signed the adoption papers. Scott County records Dennis as, quote, solidly built with blue eyes and blonde hair. His foster mother, Mrs. Martins, beams when she talks about him, calling him a real nice baby and a clown, for he always laughs at himself and other people when they are around. He's extremely strong, already able to turn himself over, and he has no teeth yet, but they are coming. He's drooling. He naps in both the forenoon and afternoon and eats well, end quote. She would say that Dennis was a good little boy, alert, active, that he was on the go and needed to be watched because he could get into things. Now, being listed Catholic was somewhat unusual because most Catholic adoptions were done through the Bureau of Catholic Charities. My sister's adoption was processed through them official notification went out that a Catholic family had been matched to a little Catholic boy, Dennis Puckett. The social worker wrote, quote, although we have some reservations as to the suitability of this home for Dennis, we are referring it to you for your consideration as it is the only Catholic home available at this time, end quote. Durain Rechdahl met with Scott County Welfare Director Dwight Dixon and his team to assess this adoption. Geraine was concerned that the almost a year old Dennis wasn't the young child Lois insisted that she wanted. Everyone else thought this was unimportant. While flipping through the file, Duran was the one who noticed that Dennis' mother, Jerry, had changed her mind about converting to Catholicism. If she had kept Dennis, he'd have been raised Protestant. Now at this time, clearly, cross-religion adoptions were not done. And the other administrators poo-pooed this as just a mistake in the report, nothing to worry about. At the meeting with Jerrine, Lois said she was disappointed in the boy's age, but wanted to hear more. Learning that Dennis was active and curious child, Lois commented, quote, He doesn't sound very well-behaved. Robert was leaving things alone at age one, End quote. Did Dennis look like Robert? Could they be brothers? This brought another round of disappointment as Dennis was stockier than Robert, although they did have the same basic coloring. After more talk, Harold and Lois decided they'd like to see Dennis. But if they rejected him, would they get a chance at another child? Did they have to accept Dennis or get no child at all? Geraint explained that this is, quote, not how it works. If you continue to have negative feelings, the state would feel it best for you not to take the child, end quote. Lois agreed, but pressed. Is it sure we'd get another child? Geraint could not make that reassurance. They'd been on the list, but as Catholics with a very limited supply of Catholic babies. Geraint, now queasy, regretted that this could be influencing their decision, hoping Lois would quelch the adoption herself. At his foster home, Dennis ran over to the Jerkins with the same joyful enthusiasm he greeted everyone. They played on the floor with him. They took him for a drive. Something, however, was troubling. Lois just never seemed to respond to Dennis at all. She'd never even touched him. The next day, the Jurgens were still undecided. Lois had complaints. Dennis was fat and sloppy. His navel stuck out all purple and awful looking. His feet were too wide. He didn't look like any of them. His eyes weren't the same color as Robert's. Dennis's wild aggressiveness might overwhelm Robert, too. But Lois didn't want to be too fussy. Okay, this is her not being fussy. Duran reminded them if they didn't take Dennis and another child came along, he or she might not look like Robert either. Concern rose about Dennis's innate personality as a more active child, and Lois said, quote, children can be trained to behave themselves, end quote. Geraint suggested that if there were so many negative feelings, it might be better to turn him down and get back on the register. Lois said they'd let her know. December 3rd, Harold called Geraint. He was ready to come get his boy. Shocked, Geraint had been certain that they were going to reject him. Determined to address Lois's complaints, they met again, with Geraint just boldly asking them if this is the child for them. Now on the defensive, Harold said Dennis was a boy who needed a home, they wanted another child, and he could fit into their home. Lois seemed even more conflicted, however, since she knew they didn't place babies with people over 40. Quote, if we don't take Dennis, we'll probably never get another one, end quote. It was Duranne's turn to be angry. The state was making this referral and leaving the ball in her lap. Age was the core of Lois's issues. If he was just younger, quote, perhaps it's best for you not to take the child, end quote, Duraine said, almost pleading. This was left hanging when Robert woke up, fuzzy from a nap. Lois took a long time before returning to the table, as if she didn't want to answer. Finally, Lois said, quote, even with all the negatives, I don't feel as though we want to turn this baby down. We'd at least like to give it a try. End quote. A try? Oh my God. Deraim was desperate for an escape patch and suggested a week trial period. December seventh, nineteen sixty two, a cherubic dentist full of vim and vigor, weighing twenty pounds, arrived for the first time at the Jurgen's home. He was a year and one day old. Dennis had eight hundred and fifty six days left to live. After five days, Duran called to check in. Lois seemed cheerful and upbeat while admitting she was having a rough time adjusting to Dennis's level of energy. He fussed some because she wasn't giving him a bottle in the middle of the night. She felt he hadn't been properly trained or given a chance to be a good boy, and that sloppy fat had to go. But they were having fun too. So they're keeping him Lois wasn't sure. Lois took Dennis to their pediatrician, old Dr. Cummings, who thought Dennis was the exact opposite of Robert. Robust and energized, where Robert was punny and sickly. Put Robert down, he'd stay, while Dennis, full of joy, ran around exploring. That big protrusion from his belly button? its a mild hernia, nothing to worry about, Doc Cummings told Lois, the perfectionist. They were going to keep Dennis. December 27th, 1962, the adoptive placement agreement was signed. Dennis was staying and the Jergens couldn't imagine giving him up. January 3rd was Duran's first post-placement interview, as there was a one-year probationary period before the adoption was finalized. Lois looked truly happy. Dennis and Robert were wearing overalls and sweaters Looking adorable. As she cut back on his carbs, Dennis looked thinner. Duraine felt worlds better about this placement after this, as her report indicates. Her next five visits found a jocular Dennis bubbling over with excitement, singing nursery rhymes and babbling with his toys. She continued to feel positive even after the August 28th telephone call from a very upset Lois. Dennis had had an accident. He burned himself with hot water. He may need a skin graft. He'd been in the hospital for a week. He'd wet his diaper. Lois had put him in the sink and ran to get a fresh one. And he managed to turn on the hot water in her absence, burning himself. At the hospital, physical therapist Nancy Dahl had never seen an injury like this. Just the tiny 23-pound toddler's scrotum and penis, red, inflamed, swollen to the size of a tennis ball. He'd only put on three pounds since he joined the Jurgen's family. Nancy had to ease Dennis into a whirlpool twice a day, comforting the boy as he cried out in pain and the waters began to soothe. Other nurses noticed the bruises all over the small boy's body. Some were disturbed enough to say something to Dennis's doctor, Dr. Roy Peterson. Years later, Dr. Peterson recalled these discussions about bruises but never put this observation into the chart. A few weeks later, it was decided a skin graft would not be necessary. Okay, I find this whole accident suspicious as hell. Why weren't Lois's hands burnt? Duran made a post-hospital visit to the Jurgens, finding both boys playing and having a wonderful time. Dennis was adventurous and loved to climb, and they loved him very much, and they were relieved they hadn't given him up. Lois told her that they were anxious to complete the adoption because they wanted to adopt again, a girl this time. February 11th, 1964, the adoption was finalized and Dennis Puckett, now Dennis Jurgens, was residing with his parents and brother in White Bear Lake. 1964 White Bear Lake was an idyllic place to raise a family with its population of 18,000. The town was enjoying a refurbishment of their downtown area as new rustic Klondike retail structures were built, giving the town a homey feeling. The desperately needed sewers and storm drain system was built, and the new $2.5 million high school opened, and the, the ribbon cutting ceremony for the new municipal center came not long afterward. The town recreation committee expanded, offering young families everything from Little League baseball. Trampoline, drawing, skiing, horsemanship. A new theater opened in a remodeled church, producing six plays that year. White Bear Lake was a thriving, adorable community, and one of twenty-two finalists for the nineteen sixty-four All American Cities contest. White Bear Lake Mayor Carfage would say, "Quote: This was not the average suburban community." Through the efforts of many people, we have had to run to catch up with our rapid growth. And win or lose, we know we have already won, and that to our citizens, White Bear Lake is an all-American city. "End quote." Dennis Jurgens died on Palm Sunday, April eleventh, nineteen sixty-five. The same week, the elated city leader celebrated this win in December. Right after the big delegation contest trip, the Gergeons held a birthday party for three-year-old Dennis, inviting the neighborhood kids, a very all-American thing to do. Seven-year-old Mike Brass was confused, though. Why was he invited? I mean, he loved cake and games, but he didn't know Dennis or Robert. Their mom didn't let them play in the park with the rest of the kids. The Zerwak clan met Dennis for the first time in January 1963. Expecting a newborn and finding a very active one year old. Robert was pleased with his little brother. 10 year old cousin Carlene, who I mentioned earlier, loved the way Dennis smelled, and Harold was parading about holding his new son. More Sunday visits continued, with Dennis joining his gang of cousins running about the backyard playing Ring Around the Rosie and Duck Duck Goose. Being the youngest, Dennis didn't quite keep up. But he laughed and giggled, having a ball. Robert was the opposite, though, quiet and shy, refusing the cookies his teenage cousins offered. Dennis took the cookies with gusto, his cousins knowing that this would annoy Lois, who would storm in, cussing and yelling, and take them away. Why would you take cookies away from a little boy? Let the kids have the cookies. What the hell, Lois? One Sunday, Dennis was imitating the teenagers dancing to rock music. And Dennis was actually good, not doing the, you know, goofy baby squats. Cheering, Dennis the menace! Lois came in furious and yanked Dennis away by the arm, and everyone just froze as the family left in a huff. And they wanted to adopt another child. Lois called the Ramsey County Welfare Department in June 1964 with Welfare Department worker Alice Cohn trying to dissuade them from adopting a third child given Lois's previous negative reaction to Dennis and was totally rebuffed Lois claimed they were having a ball Alice assigned a caseworker to do another home study to be certain given her unease experienced social worker Norma Potter showed up to evaluate the Durgens' home large fenced in backyard basement recreation room filled with toys Dennis was talking amazingly well, a pixie-like quality about him. Reading the file, Dennis had been described as Husky by Duran, but the boy she saw today was slender and small. Climbing up on Lois's lap, Dennis sang, Take Me Out to the Ball Game from start to finish. Touring the home, it was immaculate, neat, and ordered. How did Lois do it? Quote, Everyone has responsibility to pick up after himself. The downstairs basement was the playroom and where Harold read the paper. End quote. She answered. Norma listened, trying not to be judgmental, but she just had a bad feeling. Why? Go slow on this one, Norma told herself, walking to the car. Go slow. This is one of those instances where you have to trust your gut. Norma Potter discussed the New Jurgen's application with her supervisor. This was tricky, because Lois could easily say all the right things, but who knew what she was like when really stressed? Norman decided to test Lois by challenging her, trying to spark a genuine response. At their next session, Lois commented that having Robert was nothing short of a miracle, with Norma aggressively questioning what she meant by this. Did she really believe that? Lois was flabbergasted but answered stiffly that she believed it was god's will that robert came to live with them but of course they had initiated the private adoption norma pressed on but lois did not bite at the end of january lois's 36-year-old sister barbara died of a brain tumor the catholic service was attended with father riser attending when the zerwax began saying the rosary 3-year-old dennis and 5-year-old robert went to kneel by the casket reciting the prayers, the Apostles' Creed, Our Father, and Hail Mary over and over, working each bead perfectly. The assembly was astonished. Most of all, now 12-year-old cousin Carlene, who did not know these prayers, let along the rosary. Cousin June Boal, who taught school for seven years, was aghast. This wasn't what little children do. How had Lois managed it? Another of Lois's sisters, Eloise, wondered why Dennis was wearing sunglasses inside the funeral home. How odd. Surviving the bitter snowy winter and waterlogged melting in March 1965 came the long-awaited news. White Bear Lake was named the All-American City, with town fathers making the announcement April 8, 1965. The celebration began even as the Lions Club prepared for their annual fundraising show. The theme, Vaudeville, what's that? Flag-raising events decorated the town. Merchants gussied up their shops in anticipation of the official all-American city flag that would fly above their town. Asked by a local reporter what they thought, residents were thrilled saying that they were happy to be living here. Harold and Lois didn't attend any of these events. April 9th, early Friday morning, Harold went off on a trip to Hawthorne, Wisconsin to help a buddy wire his home, leaving Lois to care for Robert and Dennis alone. She was furious because the melt runoff water had backed up in the basement, which flooded, and she had to handle everything without Harold's assistance. Later, Harold said, quote, she griped about the water in the basement and the kids and stuff, the basement being flooded. She was angry at me for leaving her with the mess and the water and the stuff, more than she could handle. End quote. Sounds like Lois is pretty stressed out. Palm Sunday, April 11th, 1965. White Bear Lake police officer Bob Vanderwist thought about his wife, Kay's birthday, and their eight kids. He was the only cop on the road this morning, and the call came in at 10 9 a.m., directing him to proceed to South Gardenette Drive. It was a dead-on-arrival call, a small child reported by Dr. Peterson. Bob didn't know Lois or Harold Jurgen's well, but worked with Lois's brother, Lieutenant Jerome Zerweck, the second in charge of the White Bear PD. But Bob also knew Dr. Peterson, the Vanderwist family doctor. Arriving, Dr. Peterson briefed Bob. He'd received a call around 9.15 a.m. at home. Harold Jurgens was afraid his son was dying. By the time Dr. Peterson arrived, little Dennis was dead. Time of death, 9.35 a.m. And then the doctor called the police, then the coroner. Inside, Vanderwist saw an agitated, distraught Lois and Harold. Noting Lois was pacing, circling the room repeatedly but there were no tears. Going to the back bedroom, Bob saw Dennis lying in his crib under his blanket. Vanderwist noted that separately, Harold and Lois basically told the same story. Dennis had a bad cold. Saturday morning, he'd slipped on the basement floor, wet from flooding. He struck his forehead on the tile. Harold had been out of town at this time, but Lois called him to come home when Dennis got sick, with Harold returning Saturday evening. He'd checked on Dennis a few times that night. At 8 a.m., he'd taken Dennis to the bathroom, and Dennis was fine, talking normally. And he'd even noticed that his dad's watch had stopped. Later, when Lois went to Dennis's room to check him again, he was gasping for breath, and they'd immediately called Dr. Peterson. Trying to get more details, the Jurgens resisted VanderWist, repeating their talking points. Slipped on the floor, bad cold, well taken care of. Harold out of town, over and over. Oh, and Dennis had fallen down the stairs. Vanderwist noted Robert and offered to take him to his house for wife Kay to babysit him, with Lois agreeing. It never occurred to Vanderwist to question five-year-old Robert on the drive over. Kay was surprised at Robert. He was 33 pounds, which is about 15 kilograms, three feet, two inches tall, think 97 centimeters, the average size of a three-year-old, not a five-year-old. So Robert's really undersized. Quiet and withdrawn, he watched the other eight kids scrambling and playing. Maybe he was just overwhelmed, but he never joined in. The coroner investigator Severio C. Gatera was on site as Vanderwist returned along with the ambulance. Spiegel writes of Vanderwist's observations of Dennis, quote, arms tauntly stretched alongside the body, hands and forearms reaching upward, lifted, stiff, eight inches off the mattress. Bed covers were pulled up to his armpits, obscuring the lower portion of Dennis's body. Vanderwist could see a good number of black and blue spots on his face, head, and arms. An awful lot, Vanderwist thought. And different shades—some dark and fresh, some faded and healing—on Dennis's face alone, Vanderwist counted at least a dozen bruises, large and small. A big abrasion covered the center of his forehead. Dennis's nose was blood red and peeling. End "Quote," Severio Patera said to Vanderwist. "Quote," Did you ever see rigor mortis set in like this? "End quote." A serious Vanderwist went and pushed down on Dennis's extended arms. They barely moved. Quote, odd, he thought, from 9.35 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., somebody doesn't get that stiff. End quote. Years later, Dr. Peterson would explain that he couldn't comprehend someone torturing a child to death. He, he just couldn't. This death did not look to be from natural causes and there were going to be problems and Peterson did not want to get involved, declining to name a cause of death. By 11.48 a.m., Van der Wisk left the Jurgen's home, being watched from behind curtains in every home along Gardenette Drive. Neighbors Bob and Camille Brass realized someone had died, then rumors said it was from a fall down the stairs. Dorothy Ingfer had seen Lois smack Dennis Once hard enough to draw blood from his nose. Gladys DeMars had watched Dennis go from a plump, robust baby to a wan little boy covered with bruises, black eyes, and split lips. Dorothy and Gladys had shared stories, being very disturbed, but felt it was none of their business. They shared stories with other neighbors, Cam Brass and Donna Needley. Donna Needley's bunch of kids had fallen downstairs and not died. A dead boy was something else, though. Bob Vanderwist was dispatched to Lieutenant Jerome Zerweck's home. A 38-year-old man, Jerome was viewed as outgoing and open, a personable father of five, feared by some, admired by many. Lieutenant Zerweck answered to police chief, Wayne Armstrong, who was known for falling asleep at his desk. All right, truth be told, Jerome was the stronger and more confident of the two, and the chief was new to White Bear Lake and relied on Jerome. Now, the conversation that afternoon between Lieutenant Zerwick and Officer Bob Vanderwist is recalled very differently from each other. All right, first Jerome. Vanderwist told him his nephew fell down the stairs and had a bruise or scrape mark the size of a nickel on his forehead Plus a red mark on his nose. Okay. Now, Bob, quote, I told Jerome there were so many bruises on the body you couldn't fit a nickel between them, end quote. So the only thing that they agree on is the word nickel. Now, note from this point forward, over the years, Jerome's Zerowaka's memory of events differing from others' versions would occur over and over and over again. What is the common denominator here? Hmm? At the coroner's office in downtown St. Paul, Saviero Patera took photos, realizing that Dennis's arms and facial bruises continued virtually all over his body. Quote, those bruises cannot be natural and I've never seen Rieger sit in so quickly. End quote. Patera told the coroner's chief investigator, Tom Flattery. Flattery called the Ramsey County coroner, Dr. Tom Votel. Siegel writes, quote, Another dead kid, the coroner thought, when he showed up soon after. Fourth one like this in the past year. Just in recent weeks, there'd been a 10-month-old with a ruptured liver and a three-year-old with a skull fracture, end quote. Votel and Flattery both felt uneasy examining the body. Dr. Robert Woodburn began the autopsy, counting between 50 and 100 bruises, the exact number being hard to determine because of the overlap. They covered legs, arms, hands, front and back of the head, shoulder, buttocks, small of the back, middle of the back, back of the legs. Plus, one described as a, quote, ulcerous lesion at the base of the penis and dark bruise on the tip, end quote. One who saw the base wound thought it was a rip, not a cut. All right, murder bookies, my heart is breaking for this poor child. (laughs) I <laughs> told you this is a hard book. We really need to understand Dennis's legacy. Which is why I picked this story, and we will get through it together, believe me. There were moon-shaped slits behind Dennis's ears that were mystifying. Woodburn also noted the body was severely undernourished, nearly emaciated. He could find no subcutaneous fat at all, yet none of this killed Dennis. The quarter-inch, 0.3 millimeter, perforation of the bowel, which allowed putrid fecal matter to flow into his abdomen, that had killed Dennis Jurgens. The perforation likely occurred two days before the boy's death, needless and agonizing. Peritonitis is treatable with antibiotics and a torn bowel can be repaired, but only if you seek medical help. The official diagnosis, death due to peritonitis due to traumatic reformation of the small bowel. Dr. Woodburn did not speculate on the type of trauma nor the extreme rigor with oddly raised arms. His job was to identify the immediate cause of death. It was the coroner's job, Dr. Votel, who would rule on the mode of death. Suicide, homicide, accident, or natural. Vanderwist was updated the next day, and he was sick at heart. He'd screwed up. He should have called in a photographer to take pictures of the home, the crib. And now he had nothing to show for how he'd found Dennis that morning. Sergeant Pete Carlcheck went to brief Chief Wayne Armstrong. Calling Harold Jurgens to the police station, Carl Chuck asked him to explain the bruising on Dennis. Harold said the boy fell a lot, bruised easily, and that he'd fallen down the stairs. But why were their bruises unrelated to the fall down the stairs? Well, Harold explained that Dennis was insensitive to pain and therefore didn't notify them when he was hurt. When asked why Dennis was malnourished, Harold claimed that both Dennis and Robert ate the same things while Dennis had trouble chewing. Harold also said he wasn't home Friday to Saturday, and he hadn't known about the fall down the stairs. Had Dennis been hit or kicked? Not to his knowledge, said Harold. When Dr. Peterson was told the cause of death was peritonitis, the happy, fast-paced, congenial doctor did a 180-degree flip, withdrawing, becoming guarded, giving vague responses to any questions. Peterson did agree to follow up with Dr. Woodburn about the cause of death. Yeah, I think he just said that in the moment. The officers went to the Jurgen's home, asking to see the basement. Harold cooperated, but told them that Dennis had tripped coming out of the bathroom, striking his forehead. But wait, wait, wait. At the police station earlier, Hatton Harold said Dennis fell down the stairs. Well, here's a red mountain, because he had. John Norton wanted to speak to investigators. While he didn't know the Durjans himself, he had relatives who were part of the Zerwak's clan. He'd heard through the family grapevine that Dennis was being abused. It had been going on for a long time, and he listed the names of family members to speak with, specifically Donna Norton Zerwak and her husband Lloyd Zerwak. However, Carl Check was aware of a breach between the Nortons and the Zerwak branches of the family one being Catholic and the other Protestant. Pondering this, it was near midnight when Van Der West realized he'd missed his wife Kay's birthday, working 16 hours straight. But there was more to do. Lloyd Zerwack opened the door at the officer's first knock. Firm and outspoken, Donna told the cops, quote, We adore kids. We have six foster kids from Ramsey County besides our own. Something needs to be done about Dennis. Yes, we'll give you a statement, end quote. It proved an eye-opener. Social worker Norma Potter was still processing the Jurgen's new adoption application when an article in the newspaper caught her eye. White Bear Boy's death studied. She went cold, realizing Dennis Jurgen's was dead. She called White Bear PD, speaking to Lieutenant Jerome Zerweckner. He referred her, correctly, to Vandermist, but added that he was Lois's brother and Dennis had very sensitive skin subject to bruising. Norma pressed him for more, given her investigation of the family for an adoption placement. She had the right to know. Norma still recalls his words, quote, Don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you. I'm not sure this is any of your business. You're a caseworker, and this is a matter for the police. End quote. She entered this into her file notes, and years later, Jerome Zerwek would deny this conversation ever took place. Mortician Jim Hansa's first task was to bathe and cleanse the body. And seeing the state of this small child, Jim Hansa was horrified. He had never seen anything like this after years of running a funeral home. Hiding the bruises, Jim worked on Dennis with extra care when a shadow appeared. It was serious, business-like Jerome Zerweck, and he wanted to examine behind Dennis's ears. As they'd known each other for years, Jim moved out of the way, kind of curious. He realized that there were small, moon-shaped cuts there. Now later, Jerome denied he ever visited the funeral home at all. Hansa, however, stuck to the story, recalling Jerome's words. Quote, Jim, you did a good job of clearing that up, end quote. Hansa believed that his job as a mortician was to prepare the body for funeral, but also to aid the living with their grief. But strangely, Lois and Harold Jurgens would have none of this. They wouldn't even let Jim take their coats on arriving. He led them to the coffin, and they looked and walked away. Sequel writes, quote, Hansa was lost. Normally, people act just the opposite. His job was usually to keep the family away from the body, to keep them under control, to prevent emotional breakdowns. Doing something day in, day out, Hansa had come to expect certain behavior, end quote. Now, grief is a different process for everybody. You do have to keep that in mind. A niece of Lois's, Joanne, had a best friend, Barbara Wistoff, who we heard about the opening of this episode. And Barbara Wistoff spent a lot of time with the Zerwaks, as they had far fewer rules than her own parents, allowing smoking, cursing, body jokes. Barbara observed Lois encouraging Dennis to walk, with her raising him to his feet and Dennis collapsing to sitting again, and repeating this over and over again, with eventually Lois yanking Dennis up by the arms and Dennis stubbornly resisting. She delivered stinging hard smacks with an open palm, with no one in the family responding, totally ignoring it. Aghast, Barbara just didn't get Lois. She seemed to hate the kid. Quote, he was stupid, ugly, fat, clumsy. She tore that guy down all the time. End quote. Barbara would go home and talk to her mother about Lois's treatment of Dennis. Dennis was with the Jurgen's about six months when Barbara saw Dennis sitting in a high chair, hands bound by dish towels. Lois was holding his mouth open with one hand, shoveling in potatoes in the other as Dennis spit it out. Lois would push it back in again and again. Finally, Dennis gagged and vomited. And Lois just kept spooning it into his mouth, vomit and all, with Dennis screaming. All of this being ignored by aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews. Barbara realized the family only spoke of what Lois did to Dennis when Lois wasn't around. In hot August 1963, Joanne, her mom Eloise, Lois's sister, and Barbara were camping at Gunflint Trail in northern Minnesota. Lois and the boys joined them about halfway through. One morning, Lois decided that it was time for Dennis's bowel movement. Taking a potty from her trunk, she put it into an insufferably hot tent, where crying, yelling, and the sounds of smacking commenced. After 10 minutes, Barbara and Joanne went for a hike to get away from it, and when they returned, the Jurgens had packed up and left. Back home, Barbara was unable to sleep after witnessing this, and Barb's mom advised her to call the welfare department. Barbara did, explaining what she had seen, deeply fearful of Jurgit's retribution, but nothing happened. After the camping trip, Barbara wasn't at the Zerwak home as much as she was growing up and had other interests. Right before his third birthday, Barbara did see Dennis, no longer the chunky, exuberant baby boy. He was terribly thin, covered with bruises, and strangely listless. The sparkle was gone and six months later he was dead. Arriving at Lake Mortuary, Barbara saw the family, tons of cousins milling about, whispering, quote, she killed him, Lois killed him, end quote. Their stories were flying, that Lois made Dennis recite the rosary, and every time he messed up, she'd get angry, beating him, making him kneel on a broomstick, and she put a clothespin on his penis to keep him from wetting his diaper. And Harold wasn't home that day. An autopsy had been done, and there was an investigation, so many bruises, and so the stories went on and on. Barbara expected grief and crying, and I'm paraphrasing now, but instead, she saw excitement, everyone buzzing. Lois looked, quote, like a regal ice cube, end quote. Now, Jim Hansa had done the best he could, but the bruises on Dennis were still visible, and others noticed them too. Lois's sister, Bev, counted six. Harold's supervisor at Muscat Electric, Walter Moore, saw them as well and thought, quote, this boy has been murdered, end quote. When someone dared to bring this up to Lois, she said that, quote, the police had beaten up the child after taking him away, and that was the reason he had so many bumps and bruises, end quote. And yet the matter was just ignored by the vast majority of people. Simply overwhelmed, Barbara ran out, getting in the car with her boyfriend, Gary Venny. Quote, oh my God, she whispered, Lois killed that baby and they're not doing anything. This is horrible, end quote. Unfortunately, White Bear Lake Lieutenant Pete Karlchek and Officer Bob Vanderwist didn't know Barbara existed. And I will stop episode 50, The All American City on a Death at White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. This is a very difficult book, and we often ask, how did this happen? Why were these people allowed around a child, let alone to adopt him? It's my hope that these questions will be answered, however unsatisfactorily. And there's more, so much more. As Dennis died, a change was beginning. That would change the law dramatically forever and for the good. And in episode 51, The Revolution, we see this investigation into Dennis Jurgen's death intensify. hard questions are asked and answered. And my next book choice is The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth, set in the late 1800s. Austin, Texas, was shifting from an isolated Western outpost into a thriving metropolis. But starting in December 1884, Austin was terrorized by someone far more diabolical than London's infamous Jack the Ripper. For almost one full year, the Midnight Assassin struck on moonlit nights using axes, knives, and long steel rods to rip apart women from every race and class. In the 19th century, the concept of serial killer was unthinkable, but this is serial murder, with the killer becoming more brazen and the citizen's panic reaching a fever pitch, utterly terrifying. Read along with me, or I am happy to tell you the story with my analysis. And I can't believe it, but the holidays are upon us, so hit that merch store on Spreadshop, complete with the Murder Shelf Book Club holiday logos. Watch for discount codes, too. And please, leave a five-star review if you are so moved. And just remember, you are so appreciated. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. Happy reading. Source material, snack and drink information, plus show notes are found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena, and lyrics by Otto Harbach.